The following podcast is part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. Are you looking for a new and empowering lens through which to view your life and your health? Then register now for Get Healthy with Sound, a weekend workshop with Eileen McCusick, an innovator in the fields of therapeutic sound, electric health, and the human biofield. May 24th to 26th at Omega Institute in Rhinebeck, New York. Learn easy and accessible techniques to reduce stress, improve focus, and increase energy. Learn more today at eomega.org slash thrive. You're listening to Unity Online Radio. The voice of an awakening world. Discover hope and healing from the other side. Welcome to Messages of Hope with Suzanne Giesman. Listen, they're all around you, close as a thought or a memory. Messages of Hope. Messages of Hope. Hi, everybody. I feel like the luckiest person around. I get to chat with some of the most interesting people in the universe and share them with you. I just love the feedback I get from so many of you that you find these conversations intriguing and inspiring as well. And that's the whole goal. Messages of hope is what we hope to bring to all of you to know there's a greater reality. And let me tell you, my guest today, Leslie Lupo, has a beautiful story. Definitely will inspire you. I can't wait to tell you about her book. But let me just tell you about Leslie first. She is Leslie, are you let me just bring you on first before I ask that question of you. Welcome to the show, okay. Leslie. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me. Yeah. You're still with Canyon Ranch. You've been there for over 24 years. It's the health resort in Tucson. It's just a beautiful place. But are you still the Mm -hmm. spiritual programs director there? No, I just just do my individual consultations with the guests. Okay. And do you teach workshops there as well? Yeah, I do lectures and um, teach workshops and teach people how to kind of get within, get you know, find that light within. Very good. Okay, well, that is what we're all about, isn't it? Well, the reason we yeah. have Leslie on the show, I was, uh, the show description that we put online is it would really get somebody's attention if they didn't know what this work is all about. It says, author Leslie Lupo shares her experience of dying. And you kind of go, what? You know, but I just love when people who've had near-death experiences come on because they really are wondrous experiences. And yours, well, let me just tell everybody about your book now. It's called Remember Every Breath is Precious, Dying Taught Me How to Live. And you let me read the galley proof of it a couple years ago. And mm-hmm. the energy that comes through this book, the love, the the power in your words is stunning. It was palpable and ha- and took me to a moment of remembering being across the veil myself. And that mm-hmm. has never happened in another book. So oh. why do- I'm doing enough talking already. I want to hear from you. Why don't you tell people about your experience of dying? We'll just jump right in. Okay. And thank you for that feedback because I, it's such a struggle to, discuss something and put it into words because words are like taking a snapshot of 
you know, a vast scene and hoping that you got the key points in there. Oh, um, you this did. All happened. Oh. oh, thank you. you. Well, I just have to interrupt you because when you say taking a snapshot, I found your descriptions of the afterlife that you experienced, some of the best, some of the richest, some of the most detailed I've ever read. Your recall of what people were wearing and what the scenery was like is fantastic. But let me, I got us off track again. Why don't you tell us oh, how okay. you got there? <laughs> it was just an interesting time in my life because at that point, um, I didn't have any spiritual belief at all. In fact, I was bordering on being an atheist. I had no interest in it. I was very scientific. I thought when you die, you die. It's ashes to ash, just poof, who cares? I just was working and being a mom and ignoring everything about spirituality. And then I had this extraordinary experience of getting caught in a stampede of horses. And I think the first thing that really um, taught me a lot was the fact that I actually popped out of my body. If I had talked to you right at that second, I would have said it was my mind. Now I know it was my immortal soul, but at that point I was still, uh, and I watched the stampede take me down. Now, and could I you tell everybody who's listening how you ended up in that stampede? What were you doing? Why were you there? I was working on a dude ranch. My husband owned a dude ranch, and a couple of the horses had run down to the hay bar with their saddles on. And I grabbed the halters to run down and get them because we were unsaddling. And I was trying to wiggle between the two horses that were packed, you know, side to side eating after the end of the day. And I couldn't get in between them, and it was a bit of a struggle. And then right before they bolted, I popped out of my body and stood about, or hovered actually, about 15 feet away. And hmm. I felt this immediate serenity and peacefulness, and I felt this love. And you know, that's an important point right there, because so many people, when I do readings and their loved ones across the veil show me that they had an accident or something happened where the body would have felt pain and mm -hmm. the loved ones still hear worry. Did they suffer? Your story no. is a perfect, yeah. beautiful example that you watched it and didn't feel that. So what was happening to your body? I was stuck between these horses when they bolted. And I had turned around to grab the back of the saddles to push my way through. And when they started to run, I spun around and my hand went into the stirrup all the way up to my shoulder. And I was struggling to keep my feet as the horses ran. Now, the horse that I was dead weight on was hitting me and kicking me. I mean, hitting me with his head. And finally, he just crushed me against the um, the barn which is concrete and metal and I watched myself just kind of flop out of his um, stirrup as the horses ran it was amazing because I watched my body fight and scream and if someone was there um, the cowboys were up unsaddling and if someone was there witnessing that they would have said I suffered horribly but there I didn't go. I didn't feel a thing it was not that, like comical, but it was just, I was so peaceful. It was like taking off 
your coat when you come home and just tossing it on the bed. That kind of like it's the end of a cycle. This is just the way you get, you let go. That's all. Wow. Wow. So what condition were you, what condition was your body in when people found you? Well, it was, I was in the hospital a couple of months. I had a crushed skull and well, when they first found me, I wasn't moving. There was a ride that came in and they raced over. Here's the boss's wife laying face down in the manure rolled me over, tried to resuscitate me for several minutes, and then had finally given up. They were looking around to see if they could find something to put over my body. And one of the cowboys ran up to find Bob. And um, that's when, you know, I was going, doing my little journey upstairs. And then um, they had given up. So the most we could figure out was that I was gone for about, 12 to 14 minutes. Wow. Um, you know, that's uh, one of the guys that was doing the resuscitation was a doctor that had been on the ride. He was a guest. So they'd given up on you. And, and I'm kind of jumping ahead here because I think it, while we'll grab this moment while we can, we'll spend the rest of the time talking about your journey upstairs. As you say, I love how you call the, the next reality upstairs, but when you did come back because you decided to come back, what a shock it must have been for everybody because didn't somebody say she's gone? And like you said, they turned around like, let's find something to put over. And tell, them how, tell us how you popped back in. Well, um, I don't remember a lot. I don't have a, a memory. It's just what they told me happened. The mm-hmm. only thing I remember is feeling like when I'm leaving upstairs, I'm fe- I felt like I was being compressed, like I was being squeezed into a sausage casing or dense, becoming denser. And then I felt like I hit the ground or like a jolt. And that's what the people there said. I, I, it's almost like an electrical jolt went through me and I sat up. And all I remember was laying on the ground, looking up, and I saw the blue sky and some trees in the corner of the hay barn And there were two men kneeling next to me on my left. And there were two women by my feet crying and holding hands. And then I just went, I just slipped away. But apparently I sat up and everyone started asking me how I felt. Leslie, are you okay? And the doctor said, be quiet, be quiet. He asked me my name and I said, I guess it's Leslie. Everyone's calling me that. And they said, where are you? And I said, I think I'm in Chicago. Like, no. And how old are you? And I thought I was around 14. And by that time, Bob came up and they said, do you know who this man is? And I said, is he my father? And they're like, no. And then I kind of eventually plopped over and passed out. And then I was in the hospital for a couple of months. He's a massive head injury. Wow. And here you are. Are you 100% recovered? Well, I have some fractures in my spine and my hip and my shoulder that um, they didn't fix. Actually, when they looked at my original CAT scans, they just told Bob, she's not going to make it. Go get people ready. Hmm. And they didn't do anything because to do something would have been maybe too um, scary to do on someone they thought was dying. So um, 
the then they didn't die, and then they had four grand mal seizures a week or ten days later, and they the CAT scan showed even worse damage down my brain stem, all across my left brain into my right, and they're just like, she's not going to recover from this and go and tell everybody, and then again, they didn't die. So they didn't really do a lot of the, a few um, fractures, and so I still have a little bit of pain in my backbone and in my hip and in my shoulder, but mm. for the most part, that's it. In fact, I still have my CAT scans from that, and when I do show it to people, like a neurologist or a radiologist, they're just like, no, no, this is not possible. And I go giggle and I go, yeah, that's me. It's not possible that you recovered so completely or even survived that is what you're saying. Survived it because they're all, every doctor, in fact, I talked at the university a couple of years ago and all the radiologists and neurologists that were at that uh, talk just kept saying, no, this is not possible. And I laughed and I said, okay, well then keep that in mind when you're treating people. There you go. Don't write everybody off, you know? Yeah. So let's now go upstairs, Leslie. It's what, funny because I, I first came back, I used the word upstairs because when I first came back, I knew that it was not a dream or hallucination. I knew it was real. It was ultra real. And yet I still was in my agnostic skeptical scientific mind instead of calling it heaven i just started calling it yeah. upstairs i like I just, that i still had to kind of hold it at arm's length and be a little bit objective i was trying to objectively understand what had happened but um so there i am and i'm watching the stampede and i watch my corpse flop along and i knew i was dead there was no doubt in my mind I knew I wasn't unconscious. I knew I just, I knew I was dead. And it was okay because, again, I wasn't dead. And (laughs) I remember thinking, I looked around the corral and I started to giggle. And I thought, this is it? This is what everyone's so afraid of? I'm still here. I'm still thinking. And I felt exactly like I do right now, except for, it's almost as if my cells all kind of separated and there's a breeze of love going through. I felt this amazing sense of awe and, and wonder and all my senses were magnified for sound and smell and yet it was all harmonious. It was not discordant uh, in any way. And I just felt so much nostalgia and everything. And I didn't have the experience of floating up through a tunnel, but it, it's, Tucson just began to fade. And this other realm kind of came into view. And I remember yeah, I, thinking, I, starred I that. if I it was starred always those around pages us. In, in your book, I, I wrote, I dog-eared and starred those pages where you talk about that exact point that this reality just faded and the other one faded in, which just shows you yeah. how malleable consciousness is. Exactly. It's, it seemed like it was all around. You know how you can kind of take a radio and you tune it into different radio stations? That's Perfect. kind of what I felt like I was doing, that my consciousness was just tuning into another you know, level of vibration you know, or sound or, 
whatever, you know. Uh, and that's what so, a medium does. You're a medium, right? Well, occasionally. Occasionally. I can't get You're them in psychic. all the time. <laughs> it's like they really have to be wanting to put give a message through. Okay. Now, why did you mention feeling nostalgia? Well, we were unsaddling, and there's another couple rides coming in. This was March of 88. It was a busy time. We were packed, and um, we were waiting for the last two rides to come in. And as I stood there, and the horses went back to eating, the cowboys up on saddling didn't know what had happened. The last two rides come in, and I was watching them, and I knew exactly what they were going to do. They were going to come through, and they're going to have to double padlock the out the lower gate so that no one could steal our horses over the night. And um, I just felt like so warm, like you're just watching something you did when you were a child. You know, it's like watching a home movie and feeling that nostalgia you felt for climbing that apple tree or whatever, um, you know, swimming and, and all that. Hmm. Okay. So it wasn't, uh, oh, my God, I'm leaving my family and my kids and my husband. Oh, no, no, no. Um, you know, I think that's a really good question. I think that um, even when they showed me my children upstairs, I felt love for them, but I never felt that angst because there was something in a bigger picture consciousness that understands that down here is just a play in a way, not not to belittle what happens down here, but that it it was looking at a bigger picture. It was kind of the way it was supposed to be, was, and you kind yeah. of accepted it. It's like playing a role in a film, and you know you have to leave your family in the film. You you do it, but you kind of have an understanding that it was kind of the way it was supposed to be. What a perfect explanation. So now you, you're fading in to this other reality that you kind of have an mm -hmm. idea has already been here. Yes. What's it like? Well, it was... <sighs> I just lose my breath when I even remember it. Um, everything was lit from within. And so many things made sense to me when I thought about it later. You know, when we look at paintings, some of the most beautiful paintings are when the sun is behind the tree and it's coming through the leaves. Mm. All the leaves of the trees, I was in a forest. It looked like an oak forest with a small river behind me. And all the trees were lit from within, all the ferns and all the flowers. And everything had like an iridescence to it. Like you see those, you know, ribbons that you get to put on a package and one's flat white and then one has like a rainbow on it. Everything up there had an iridescence, like a rainbow to it. And yet it wasn't, I touched something because I thought maybe this is a hologram and it was, it moved with, you know, when I touched it, I could move it. So it was, you know, air quotes, solid. Um, I looked at my hands. I thought, what do I look like? You know, first I thought I was a ghost on earth. I first thing, I, next thing I thought after I realized how wonderful it was, I went, oh, my ghost. And I, I wasn't a ghost, but I saw this tiny, tiny little 
kind of fluorescent blue light around me. And then when I was upstairs, the blue was like maybe um, a half an inch around me. And you could see streaming or energy coming off of me. Hmm. And my skin looked like I was 20 and I had big freckles, like, you know, diamond quarter size kind of, but they were goldy orange. And my hair, I touched my hair was short, kind of jaw length, you know, and my hair is very long. And I was like, oh, I like long hair, you know, and, and I couldn't really see what I looked like. I was just saying, you know, I'm a girl. I had a long dress on and I just kept looking at everything around me and feeling the intense level of this unconditional love that selflessly was being given to me by everything I looked at and also feeling it pouring out of me. And then I realized, wait a minute, I don't have any fear here. I mean, here I am. I have no idea where I am. I'm actually feeling a little groggy in this dimension than I did on earth. On earth, I felt electrified and charged up. Here, I felt a little slower that kind of groggy and yet I had none of that hardwired fight or flight DNA in me and it was it was such a relief to have zero capacity for fear and all of the you know garbage that goes along with that um, just I basked in it and and just was it was the wonderment of it and then i noticed to my left there was a clearing in this forest and there was a table um and some people there waiting watching me smiling and so i thought okay i guess that's where i go and when you when i moved i can't speak for others but when i moved it was more like you think it and you're there you know if i looked across Instead of linear walking, it was just like I went there. Nice. And I was standing by the chairs, and I realized that a couple of the people that were closest to me were people that I had seen as a child. I would see these light beings when I was really, really little, and I didn't know that no one else could see them. If and I could interrupt just... here, Leslie, and anybody that's joined sure. us a little late, we're talking with Leslie Lupo, who is back to talk about her near-death experience. It was actually a death experience. And her book is Remember Every Breath is Precious. Now, I loved how you started the book by taking us back to your childhood and seeing this blue lady, right? And and yes. and conversing with these light beings. It's the quintessential story of the little child. And everybody says, now, Leslie, you know they're not real. Stop talking to these exactly. people. Exactly, exactly. And you get to meet them when you cross the veil. This It was so yeah. beautiful. It was kind of like, oh, I remember you. My, my great-grandmother could see them. Oh, I yeah, only remember cool. one experience where she was singing to me and the blue lady. And then my other grandmother, my mother's mother, took me in when I was talking to the blue lady when we were gardening and took me in and put cold water on my forehead and made me wear a hat. I think she thought I was getting a little squirrely. Overheated. But yeah, it was something I had to realize was that I not everyone could see this, and that frightened me. 
So because I'd like I to get your why. take on this. You met that blue lady now within within Earth time, within minutes of leaving your body behind. And mm-hmm. would you consider her a guide throughout your life? Or when you met up with her again, was she more like a dear friend, part of a soul group? It was like a dear friend. I mean, the sense I got from the 12, other 11 people, we were sitting in an oval table and my chair was there. It was like meeting up with part of my soul group rather than a guide. Although I don't know, maybe some of your soul group helps guide you. Yes. Um, but there That's were what other I'm beings that were older, you know, that I felt like with Saraswati or with Jesus, I felt they were more for guidance. These were more like for brainstorming or just getting me up to speed as to what was going on. Well, Leslie, if I could, and I know I shared this with the t- with you at the time when you shared your your galley proofs with me years ago, that I had had my spiritually transformative experience on a healer's table where these light beings standing around me said, now do you remember? And I was sobbing because I remembered where we all come from. But reading yeah. your book, I remember now it was July 4th. I was reading in bed. Uh, Ty was off traveling somewhere and... I sobbed reading your description of meeting up with your soul group around this table because my group at the moment reading your book said, this is what she was remembering. This is what you remembered. Everybody will have these reunions. And again, just sobbing as Mm -hmm. your book brought those memories back. Well, I think that we all have that. I think that's the core issue for being on earth. I think, on some level, every human being on the planet has a memory of the heaven and their soul group and where they came from, and they have a, a memory of that intense level of love without any fear. Yeah. And I think we long for it. It's we absolutely long for it. So how do we find it here? Well, I know the answer. I, I want to hear from you. <laughs> <laughs> well, that was a good question because when I came back from my journey and came back into the life I was sitting in, which was no spirituality, which was the doctor decreeing that I'm psycho because I will insist oh, that I, this was not a hallucination. You know what? I want to talk I about that be... doctor, but I shouldn't ask the question because we have to go to a break. So now you all have to come back and hear the oh. answer. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so, all right. All right. We'll see you all in just a few minutes. Are you looking for a new and empowering lens through which to view your life and your health? Then register now for Get Healthy with Sound, a weekend workshop with Eileen McCusick, an innovator in the fields of therapeutic sound, electric health, and the human biofield. May 24th to 26th at Omega Institute in Rhinebeck, New York. Learn easy and accessible techniques to reduce stress, improve focus, and increase energy. 
Learn more today at eomega.org slash thrive. Practical Spirituality Positive Messages This is Unity Online Radio The Voice of an Awakening World Welcome back. You're listening to Messages of Hope with Suzanne Giesman. So we've been really enjoying a conversation with Leslie Lupo, who died in a horse stampede and had an amazing experience in what she calls upstairs. And we were going to talk about how you found the peace up there when you got back, but it wasn't all peaceful at first because you lost your memory oh. more about that later but i would love if you would tell everybody about this doctor that didn't want you telling people that you <laughs> had this otherworldly experience right i think the problem was for the first few weeks i was totally amnesic i didn't remember anything about anything and even every day i was not recording but eventually i kicked in and I began to want to talk about it with everyone and share the light and the love and the, the message of hope, which is so tied to you, is that we need hope here. And if people know this, then they can actually, you know, have this hope. Um, and everyone, the doctor kept telling all my family and friends and anyone that visited not to encourage it. And because I was having a psychotic break, um, at which point he came in one night, you know, everyone would look at each other and they'd change the subject. And he came in one night and he sat on my bed and he started poking me in the shoulder. And he said, if you ever say one more word about this, I'm going to put you in a psychiatric unit. I'm going to pump you up with so many drugs. You're not going to know if it's day or night. And by the ah. time he finished with that, I had rolled away from him and was sobbing. And I have to say that I have never felt more terrified and helpless in my entire life because of the fact he could do it. My family and my friends believed him because he was a doctor. There happened wow. to be a little nurse in there, and she was leaving when he came in, but she stayed when she heard his tirade. And when he walked out, she came over and she was petting, kind of, you know, patting my back and, you know, waiting for me to stop crying. And then she said to me, she's an intensive care nurse, and she said to me, um, I've heard this before. And from going down to such a deep place, for her to say those words, that was like a light shining through a tornado when you know and dissipating because she said something that made me relate, like you've heard this before with people who are in ICU. The next night she came with another nurse, and just for 10 minutes I shared a little bit. But I also learned from my family and friends who still kept saying, don't, don't say these things, I just showed up about it because I needed to feel safe. And safe, yeah. I was totally powerless at that point. Wow. Yeah, that was not fun. 
it must have been really challenging to to find the balance between the, what you had actually experienced and the peace that you surely brought back with you. Now we can talk about that, you know, yeah. but you can't talk about it then. Yeah, yes. You know, thank goodness for Raymond Moody who kick-started everything. As I was healing, I had lost my memory completely, and it literally took me about a year. And the way that it would come back is I would meet someone and they'd sit down and they'd start telling me things like, remember that ride we were on and there was a rattlesnake and your horse jumped in the choya and we had to get off and use a comb. And then by, by talking, all of a sudden, bang, 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 it's, it's all in my memory, you know, and it's all like there. And so there were funny things that happened. There were tragic things that happened that I had to keep going through. It was kind of like being super glued into a roller coaster. I had to reread three times because it was so enjoyable to me, this being the way you described this one scene of going to see your neighbors who you'd known for years when yes, back at the and ranch. and then to their house and everything. We yeah. had some people that were coming, uh, that came from England and used to stay at the ranch, and then they bought land next to us, so we would um, go over and visit. And here I come walking in, and now I have no memory of the house or them or anything. And they're sitting down, and we're chatting. And I'm like, they're giving me some prompts. And I'm like, no, don't remember. Nothing's going on. And so then um, the man brings over a little CD and says, does this look familiar? And I said, no. And so he sat down at his piano. He's a musician. He started playing some of the songs. Mm -hmm. I'm listening and all of a sudden, I, I start singing with them because I remembered the words. Not only did I remember the words, I remembered the next song. And by the third song, I looked, and all of a sudden, I went, oh, my gosh, this is Paul McCartney. And <laughs> instead of being Leslie Cote, who had hung out with Paul and Linda, beautiful, normal, healthy people, I'm freaking out because I've reverted back to 12. And I'm looking at Paul McCartney sitting next to me, and I started stammering. I turned purple, and Bob and Linda, who were watching us, started laughing. And Linda says, I think she remembers him now. You know, and it was like, oh, my goodness. And then all your memories come back, which is why they had told me it would be very difficult because when you have a bad memory, it's going to surface just like it happened five minutes ago or take you right to that point. And here I'm reverting back to a giggly 12-year-old sitting next to Paul McCartney singing, you know. It was so, so funny. Super. They were just such a sweet couple. Uh, so let's go back upstairs. Did you experience, I know the answer to this already. Tell us how you experienced the divine, as you called it. Uh, one of the things that the people at the table, Mina, and Rao was a man were sitting next to me. They're the only ones that really spoke to me. I heard cheering, welcome back and stuff. But they, we discussed the fact that I had a choice to make whether I stayed upstairs or came back to Earth. And they decided it would be a good idea if I was a little more grounded. And there was a beautiful cave behind a waterfall that I used to love to meditate in or hang out in. So... Rao and I started to move in that direction and all of a sudden I felt this extraordinary presence as we left the forest we're in a field 
And I just feel this, like, awareness of who I am to head to toe and this adoration coming. And I looked up and I saw this pulse point. It wasn't like a sun. It wasn't colored differently. But you could tell energetically that it was pulsing like an orb. But it was consciousness. It was the divine. I felt like that's the source of everything wonderful. There Mm -hmm. were patterns around it like mandalas. And I thought those might have been angels singing because I could hear faintly song. But the sense of the divine, of God adoring me, I I've always was trained as a child to adore God, but not to feel that adoration. And I wanted to kind of float up in a way and merge. And Rao kind of had to hold me down because I felt like I could lift and merge. And the other thing I noticed was to the side, it looked like I was looking through a glass floor at a whole nother realm. And Hmm. Rao said there were countless other realms and that we could go up there or come back down again. And everything made sense. I mean, it makes sense when you're upstairs when someone says that to you. But back here when I was struggling with, like, what just happened to me and how do I find this light again within me? Mm-hmm. I was like, God, what did he mean by that? Because I couldn't, I couldn't translate it well. It just, there's a knowingness that everything just made perfect sense that this is the, the source of all of the realms, you know? It's so comforting. Everything you're sharing with us today just takes away the fear and the reason people fear death is it's the fear of the unknown and it's stories right. like yours that show us we really don't have anything to fear right and i had zero faith when it happened if if someone if when i popped out of my body if i knew i was watching myself die i would have thought oh well it's over just nonchalant in a way i wasn't afraid of death and dying i knew it would come some time but I didn't think about it ever because I just thought, yeah, this was totally different. You know, this was like such an extraordinary experience to someone who had given up a path of faith and gone in a whole nother scientific direction and just like, yeah, materialist, that's it. Ashes to ashes, that's it. But what's very interesting that comes out in your story is you found out when you were upstairs that you had passed by an opportunity years earlier to return home. Yes, I, um, I did. I had a, um, when I was in college, I had a, um, I was, you know, had the love of my life. We were engaged and, I was supposed to stay in Albuquerque with him. And about a week before his accident, I got an impulse to leave and go back to Chicago to get money together for college. At that point, um, I was shown that I chose to stay, that Sean and I had um, incarnated together. And... um, had I had chosen to stay and he went he went on 
So he was still upstairs when I was back on earth. So you had this love of your life at age 21 and you had, you found out upstairs you were supposed to pass with him. Yes. But, but we you didn't contracted, I guess to, um, uh, we had contracted to, um, come down together to start this shift of consciousness and then he and I were going to go back at a very young age. Yeah. So do you want to tell folks, I had completely forgotten, Leslie, that I factored into your story. My well, wonderful friend, Lynette. When I sent my, you that, yeah, you know, the thing to read, I, I didn't have the appendices in it. I hadn't decided to put them in at that point. So I want to give credit to Lynette, my wonderful friend who who does all the the back work for getting the show together. She was reading your book last week and she said, hey, look, you're in the book. And she sends me a page. And I went, what? I'm in the book. So now I get the book out. I hadn't started reading it yet. And I skip back to this part where you have this entire transcript of a reading that I did for you. Yeah. What made you seek okay, a medium Okay, so when out? I was doing my book, when you mentioned the detail, part of that was one of the guests at the ranch who was, he and his wife were pushing me to write the book. When I started, it was all kind of smaller descriptions, like he had dark hair and a beard. And then Leslie Klein would say, how long is his hair? Is it loose? Is it, you know, how long is his beard? What color is his eyes? What color is And he got, he pulled out all those details. I mean, I can visually see him. It's just I never thought of putting them in. So um, uh, when he mentioned to me when I went back to the table, there were 30 in my group and 20 of them had come down. Now when I go to the table, there's 11. And so he just casually said, which one was Sean? And I said, oh, I don't know. I didn't think of it. The boyfriend that died. That you, the boyfriend Sean being, that died. Yeah, the boyfriend that died. So so this other Leslie who's grilling you as you're writing the book has figured out that Sean is yes. one of those people around the table. Exactly. I didn't know I don't know why it never dawned on me, but it didn't. And then all of a sudden I start dreaming about him every night in a different form than he was on Earth. But he's laughing and he's showing me how many times he has coincidentally co- you know, changed something in my life. And he and I couldn't get the message from him, so I called Gary, and I Gary said, Gary, Bean. I need to talk to him, Gary Schwartz. And right. I said, I need the afterlife to talk researcher to the who who comes up on this show frequently. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He wrote the forward for me, and he's brilliant. So I called him up. I said, I need a medium because I knew he would know the best one, and I want one that knows nothing about me. She's never heard my name. This is way before I met you. And he gave me your name. And so I wrote to you and you, we just did it cold. You know, in fact, you, the funny thing is, is you called me like within two days and said, well, I can do it tomorrow. And I wasn't ready. (laughs) Fortunately, I had something I could have moved, but I didn't. I said, oh, I'm sorry, I'm booked. So you gave me a couple more days later and then I could take a breath. And that was when you did that. And then you sent me the file and I transcribed everything when I decided afterwards, people were asking me a lot of questions. I thought, you know what, I'm going to put this, this reading in the book because I thought it showed 
the way you talked about um, the you, I'm in a forest and I'm with people. Are these your guides? No, these aren't your guides. They're putting a robe on you. These are part of your soul group. You were going on and on and on with stuff that you didn't. I didn't tell you anything, and that's why um, I decided to put that in there. And that's actually why I got a couple of really top name people giving me endorsements because of my kind of, not skepticism, but my still wanting to understand and asking all these questions. And here you are not knowing anything and you're, you know, telling me exactly what I had experienced. Well, your boyfriend, Sean, came through in the reading and was giving details like this special suede vest with fringy bottom that that you had and and details about your relationship. And then all of a sudden I'm I'm talking to these people that look like guys and I'm journeying through a forest and thinking this is crazy stuff. But it's really interesting because Dr. Schwartz, who researches the afterlife, uh, he's been doing it for decades. He actually stated this was historic because it was the first time any medium has been able to validate a near-death experience, what happened in a near-death experience, completely blind to it. So fascinating. And the way he does when he works with mediums is he grades them on how accurate it is from my experience. And you were like way up, you know, in the high, I don't remember, 90s or, you know, percent accurate for the pictures that you were getting. So it was... Part of his studies, we turned it into a study, which is also in the book. And then they went and blew someone out of the water who does astrology by talking about Mina and Rao. And turns out that Rao is the north node of the moon, which goes through Mina once every 20 years. And for 28 minutes was in that exact, exact um, location when I had my near-death experience. So that is also included in the book was his astrological interpretation of what was going on. And and it just blew my mind because he knew nothing about it either. So it's just nice to have outside corroboration. Oh, yeah. So we were talking about, you know, the struggles when you return. People in 1988 didn't know much about near-death experiences, but you'd gone into this experience an agnostic. Now, you come back and maybe it's time to get back into the spiritual path. How did you come to terms with that? Well, I knew that I couldn't go back to being um, an agnostic. I knew something phenomenal had happened, but I first had to get through all of the, um, my ex-husband owns a beautiful resort. It's a dude ranch and I was working there and I had to get back into the groove again. I had a one-year-old and a three-year-old that I hadn't seen in a couple of months. So I had to reestablish, kind of get my feet on the ground. And it literally took me about a year. I had to have physical therapy. I had to go have um, all this stuff, you know, afterwards because of the severity of the head injury. And by that time, I began to Coincidentally, um, my our vet leaves. A new vet comes in. She's like Mystic Meg. The other man was just an old, crusty cowboy. <laughs> and then this woman comes in, and she's like, um, 
talking. She bought a beautiful frame she had made, but the employee was no longer there. And all of a sudden, she still tells the story. I kind of blurted out, do you know how to ride? Because they wouldn't let me ride by myself. This was a few months after I was up and running again. And sounds so like a setup from spirit. Yes. The spirit was setting every five feet. I bumped into someone deeply spiritual in metaphysical or Buddhism or whatever pathway. And so I began to study. They recommended books. And it was like a journey to say what fits me rather than this is the only way to go to spirit. And so I practiced meditating. I learned how to meditate. I went to India a few times to sit in these ashrams of silence for two weeks and three weeks. Um, my marriage had ended, and we would were um, very good with the kids as far as he would go to Minnesota with the kids, and I would take off to go to India and just sit and just chill because I was still trying to process where where who am I? Because even within the spiritual world, if I started to talk about the near death, I got shunned, which startled me. Wow. Because yeah. they people still, this was like 88 is when I had it. This was 89 and 90. And people still were very standoffish to the concept of a near-death experience. I didn't, unfortunately, find Raymond Moody, but in a way... I'm glad I didn't because I had to go inside and find that light within myself. Yeah. And it was by stilling the mind and just learning how to relax and allow my intuition back out again um, that I was able to come to that place of inner peace. And for those of you listening in the archives, not live, rewind right there and listen to that again because that's that's the key. Beautiful. Mm -hmm. so the title of your book, Remember Every Breath is Precious, where does that come from? It's the last thing when I finally did decide to go back because I wasn't going back at first. Um, in fact, I said to Rao, oh, no, my kids are fine. Bob's a good father. <laughs> you know, they, he was, yes, he is, but you can't teach them what you can teach them. And I'm like, no problem. Um, that that is amazing fine. to me. You know, the, the maternal instinct here is so strong, and you hear most of the times oh. about mothers saying, I have to go back. How does that feel to you now when you're back here? Uh, I mean, I eventually went back. I mean, when I finally decided, it was because of the children. But my first initial response was, I'm not leaving this place. This is like getting paid to taste chocolate, you know. <laughs> and, and But when I went into this area, it was – feeling I was feeling that compression and I actually gasped because it was the only time I felt uncomfortable and they stopped the process and Rao who was helping me through this said you you don't have to go back we can you can stay and I remember so strongly looking at him and the love in everybody's eyes up there and he and I looked at him I said no I will and then he said those words he said remember every breath is precious and that's the last thing I heard before I got, you know, before I left. So that's why it was such a, the gratitude. So for me, the two things are the incredible gratitude and to remember that the world is a one-room schoolroom 
which means you have people with all different curriculums. And it makes it easier to accept someone who's different from me, you know, and also not be in judgment of them or feeling if they are judging me that I don't have to defend myself or explain myself, that maybe we just aren't in the same curriculum and I can kind of not take things personally, which, you know, is a, a hard thing for humans to do. Yeah. Kind of in our hard drive, isn't it? Well, you've really shown it quite clearly today that we really are this merging of the immortal soul and a human body, which is mm. why you felt no pain and, and that really we're so influenced by the body here. But the subtitle to your book with just a minute and a half to go here is Dying Taught Me How to Live. So you just explained yeah. a couple things there about with gratitude and understanding can you wrap up our beautiful conversation today with what else dying taught you i think it taught me that everything is geared towards growth upstairs learning is as precious and valuable as leisure time is on earth they love it so to mm. learn and grow and better myself i gave up the concept of perfection it doesn't exist if I was perfect, I'd have nothing left to learn and I'd have no one to speak with because I'd always be the teacher. So I gave up the concept of perfection and allowed myself to learn and grow, which means making mistakes. But if I learn from them without judgment, then I'm not going to repeat them. And that was, I think, the best thing for me is to learn and grow until I die in this lifetime. Everything is about growth. Wow. That is just such a gold nugget right there. I love the, mm -hmm. it's freeing, isn't it? Yes, it is. It's something you really meditate on is to recognize that there's no such thing as perfection. It does not exist. And yet we have that belief from a very young age that adults are all perfect. Then I get to be in my 30s and I go, oh, my gosh, I'm not perfect. And we begin to have our true growth and maturity is jumping up and continuing every time we drop to one knee. Well, you've sure helped us to grow today, Leslie, and we thank you all thank for you. sharing your story with us. It was just beautiful. Oh, thank you for inviting me. Thanks for listening. This is Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world. Do you want to deepen your connection to the divine, speed up your progress on the spiritual path, then tune in to the Spirit Matters podcast. I'm the host, Philip Goldberg, and I interview experts with wisdom, insight, and practical guidance for every seeker of truth. Spirit Matters on the mindbodyspirit.fm network. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.